You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, um, I'm not going to um, go through any kind of complicated extra makara tonight. I really want to just read the Akeda together with you and raise issues as best I recall them textually from, uh, from my own prior reading. Um, and then try and get a sense of what we think the Akeda means. So participation is great as well. I'll tell you why I'm, I'm why I'm stimulated to do that this week. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen that uh, Professor Aaron Colon, Kohler at Yeshiva University wrote a book recently called Unbinding Isaac, um, which is both a, a scholarly work on the history of interpretations of the Akeda and a polemical theological work about the way in which the Akeda is used in contemporary Orthodox theology. Uh, and we should really plug that back a little bit further. Um, there is a term that has come into vogue. Uh, apparently, it was first created by a Professor Ronit Yershai in Israel, uh, although I, I, don't, I don't know it. I didn't hear it from her first. Uh, and it's then been picked up by Rabbi Ethan Tucker of Hadar and uh, by Professor Kohler now. Uh, which is to identify a certain kind of, of orthodox thought as what we call Akeda theology. And what they mean by Akeda theology is a theology which sees it as a religious goal to have the experience of the Akeda. And so I want to be very subtle here, um, right? I think I have to make a very careful distinction. There is, right, because I think there is a confusion that really matters. And I have to say, like, to some degree, I'm no guy here because I think that um, at least the way Rabbi Tucker uses it, in many ways, it's a continuation of arguments we had when I was uh, rabbi at Herbert Hill and he was chair of the undergraduate student council. Um, so we've both aged a lot since then. But the, uh, the argument is ongoing. So I want to make a distinction between two things. One is an idea that the experience of the Akeda is something that you aspire to. Um, and this is like, you know, a version of uh, when Rabbi Akiva is being flayed alive in the marketplace by, uh, right, by the Romans, and he's smiling, and his, um, right, and his uh, students tell him, right, you know, Ad Khan Rabbi, right, how can you, how can you still be, right, be, uh, be, you know, be happy throughout this hor horrific physical experience? Rabbi Akiva says, Kol right, all my life I was bothered by this verse, Mataya Volia Diva came in, and when it would have come to my hand, then I would fulfill it. Now, Rashad, right, uh, right, um, right, the verse is, right, you should love God with all your heart, even if he takes, even if he takes your life. So now that it comes to my hand, right, I, now that it comes to my, uh, to my hand, should I not keep it? Right, and Sarabi Kiva is, in a sense, enthusiastic about the experience of martyrdom. Um, right, you know, that, and if he hadn't had the experience of martyrdom, that would have been a, a lack in his life because he never got to fulfill that verse entirely. Uh, now, the Gemara itself has a certain amount of ambivalence about that idea uh, because there's a there's a, another section in the Gemara, Gemara in Yoma, the Gemara is a story that I always read as a satire on the Rabbi Akiva story, in a sense, uh, where there's a Sadducee who is carrying a ca carrying the Ketoret through the um, right, through through the Azara of the Beit HaMikdash in Yom Kippur. He's like, he's this, this a Sadducee has become Kohen Gadol. And his son finds him and says, or his father finds him, right, and says, aren't you scared that the Pharisees are going to kill you because you're a, you know, you're a high priest violating the halakha because the Pharisees think that you have to, uh, right, you, have, you have to light the turret after you get inside? And he says, all my life I waited for this verse, and now I get to, right, now I get to fulfill this verse. So I think that that story is supposed to be read against the Rabbi Akiva story. He, he dies horribly also, but when Rabbi Akiva dies horribly and a, and a voice comes down from heaven and says, Ashrecha Rabbi Akiva, right, Blessed are you, Rabbi Akiva. The Sadducee dies horribly, and no verse comes out like that. They just say, "Wow, he died for a right. He died for the wrong religion." Um, so I think I think that story reflects a certain amount of ambivalence in that you know about that kind of aspiration for martyrdom, or at least a realization that aspiration for martyrdom can be for a bad cause. Um, but Akeda theology is a claim that you're aspiring to a different kind of martyrdom. That the the martyr not a physical martyr the way Rabbi Akiva is, but a kind of uh, I guess the sharpest way of framing it is a martyrdom of every other value that one holds dear on the altar of religious belief. And so it's a way of reading the Akedah and saying that what happens in the Akedah is that you have Avraham, 
Abraham is, let's say, right in a classic reading, Abraham is the paragon of Chesed, because the verse, right, Chesed Abraham. So Abraham is identified with Chesed, and we see that, right, Abraham, you know, Abraham goes out to greet guests, right, Abraham prays for stone, and then he's told to, to sacrifice Yitzchak. That is a violation of all the other values that he has held in his life. So that's, right, that's his Akedah moment. And so the claim is that Akedah theology involves a, an aspiration to that notion that right, you haven't hit this peak of religious experience unless you have uh, unless you've had the Akedah and you look for it. Um, now Professor Kohler um, critiques that as as Rabbi Tucker and I agree with him. Right? That's what uh, that's right, why I want to make a very subtle distinction. Um, and Professor Kohler frames it I think very nicely. Right, he says that you know, his critique of it is that you should never end up, this is a philosophic critique, which he's then going to claim, we'll see, right, we'll see whether it's convincing or not, I think it's not a bad argument, is the message of the Akedah, is that you can't have your religious experience at someone else's expense. Um, right, and so, since an Akedah, right, if you say your Akedah moment is your sacrifice of chesed, or of ethics, well, the thing is, when you sacrifice your ethics, you almost always, and right, ethics are you define ethics especially as proper interpersonal behavior. So then sacrificing your ethics is always going to be sacrificing somebody else, not yourself. And so Professor Kohler wants to read it, say that the Akeda is in fact, uh, the way to read the story is as a rejection of Akeda theology, because in the end, that's what God tells Abraham, or that's what Abraham figures out at the end of the story, is that he's not supposed to sacrifice Yitzchak, not because there isn't something that can be achieved by sacrificing Yitzchak, but because you're not allowed to get the thing that is achieved by sacrificing Yitzchak by sacrificing Yitzchak. All right, that's the um, right. That's the fundamental. Uh, that's the fundamental critique. Professor Kohler ex- articulates that as a critique of Rav Soloveitchik, uh, and uh, Rav Soloveitchik is coming in on the heels. Um, depending how you want, whether Ray Soloveitchik would articulate it himself as coming on the heels of his grandfather, um, but there's no question he's also very influenced by the Danish theologian Kierkegaard, and so Professor Kohler tends to situate this in the in the framework of Kierkegaard as opposed to in the framework of uh, the framework of uh, of Chaim Soloveitchik, and the claim which I think Professor Yershayim made is that this is actually uh, this emer- right, that there are Jewish thinkers who emerge at the same time as Kierkegaard um, framing the issue in a similar way. Okay, so that's the, right, so one way of articulating the message of the Akedah is that the Akedah is a peak experience, and in that version of the story, the fact that Yitzchak doesn't die is largely irrelevant. It's a bonus. The Akedah happens, and it so happens that the, the Akedah experience can happen without Yitzchak dying. So since the Akedah experience can happen without Yitzchak dying, so then, why did Yitzchak have to die? Or alternatively, there were two there were two things that needed to happen. A is the Akeda experience had to happen, and B, Yitzchak had to live. All right. So if Yitzchak had to live, so okay, so we found a way to write. But that again, that's fundamentally irrelevant to the story. Uh, possibly the most extreme version of this is a um, is of a series of midrashim in Ashkenaz that was made famous by in a book by uh, Shalom Spiegel called The Last Trial, I believe. Uh, in which he, which read the story of the Akedah as, in fact, Avraham does kill Yitzchak, and then God resurrects him. All right, and these are and these are people argue right. These are bijushim that are very much built off Crusade chronicles, uh, where you have stories that seem to be you know that seem to be historical that sometimes Jews would in fact sacrifice their children to prevent them from being baptized, and they would see that as a reenactment of the Akedah Yitzchak. And you also locate that in the context of anti-Christian polemics, because there's always a problem that um, right that our Yitzchak doesn't die, uh, right? The Christian Jesus does die, so maybe he outdoes us, right? So, right? So, right? So, a version in which in which Avram Yitzchak dies and resurrected is more competitive, uh, is more competitive that way. So that's that's I, I I have no I have no difficulty with that as a textual reading per se, although I want to see whether that's the right way to read the text. Um, but I do want to make a distinction in the realm of Akedah theology, which I think is often missed, which is that there's one thing, right? And I think you can say something else, and that something else is very powerful and worth um, 
and worth exploring at least as to whether it can be said in a way that doesn't come up against the critique of having your religious experience at someone else's expense. Um, so another way of framing it, and this I think is the idea that I tried to articulate when I was um, a much younger campus rabbi and was critiqued then, and I think is being critiqued more harshly now, and I'm willing to look at it again, but I want to articulate it again and see, and see how it comes across. Um, what I have tried to argue um, many times over the years is that it would be fairly astounding if human beings manage to frame their, let alone even, you know, even being not at the pinnacle of, uh, you know, of, uh, of, you know, of every human characteristic, could develop a sense of the right and wrong that was exactly parallel to what God believed was right and wrong. That would be quite a remarkable thing if you, if you automatically intuited uh, right, so all your all your ethical instincts are exactly in line with what God wants, and just there's no daylight between you and God. You know, I have friends who claim that about themselves, <laughs> but I find it odd. Uh, I find it odd, and so therefore, what I wanted to argue was that if you never have the experience of a, this is what I think is the right thing to do, and b, this is what I think. Torah, halacha, whatever you want, right, tells me to do, whatever my epistemology is for thinking about what God wants to do other than simply relying on my own instinct and access to my own soul. So then probably something is wrong because how could it be that you have nothing to learn? How could it be that you're always right? Um, right that would imply that your mind has already achieved uh, beauty in with um, with God's instincts, and therefore it seemed to me what I argued was that if you end if it, if you end up living a halachic life in which nothing bothers you ever, and you're always comfortable with whatever halacha tells you to do, so then probably you're doing it wrong, because that almost certainly means that you are interpreting halacha to match your instincts rather than the other way around. Uh, right, because right, you're not allowing halacha to serve as a check on your instincts, because if you were, you would at least feel the tension sometimes. And then the question is, when you feel that tension, what are you supposed to do? Right, so, you know, I, I, I read the Makara, I read the, read the sources, I asked the Shaila to whoever I asked Shaila's to, I read whatever art scroll books are on the subject, whatever, whatever it is, however it is that one makes one's own determination of what the halacha should be in any given case. Um, right, so now, that, right, but now, and I reach the halacha, and in the end, it still doesn't feel right. So now what do I do, right? So, you know, in the long run, what I do is I spend lots of time learning, and I try and keep learning and keep learning, and hopefully I'll find a way in which it works out, which I, which feels honest to me in the sources and feels honest to me about what my, right, about what the right and wrong is, and that involves a, a great amount of introspection and intellectual, all those sorts of things. And as soon as I solve that one, there should be another one, because I still have there's still a huge gap between my mind and, and God's mind. So what I argued, right, was that uh, I guess with the, those moments, um, right, with those moments are, it's not because the religious peak experiences, but they're good checks on whether you're doing it right or not. Because if it turns out that the way you interpret halakha always agrees with what you thought in the first place, um, you know, about what's right and wrong, so then you're probably not doing it right. So the counter to that is, but we want people to live authentically. We want people to live integrated lives. So we really don't want people constantly feeling that, you know, they're doing halacha despite the fact that, it, that they think it's wrong. Uh, right. We're, you know, we don't really live in a, in, in that kind we don't really live in a world where that's popular or, or think that's psychologically healthy. Uh, so I think that's a really great question. What do you do? And if it turns out that your decision there always is, well, I follow what I think is right, regardless of what halacha says. So then that's also a challenge, right? Whether you're really living a halachic life when halacha only, is only allowed to confirm what you would do anyway. Um, so that's where I think, I think that, you know, that, that tends perhaps dangerously towards Akedah theology by saying, well, there has to be some occasion where I do something even though I don't find it convincingly right right now because it's the halacha and halacha is ultimately, right? Halacha ultimately, I think, tells me that I have to do this, whether you think halacha ultimately tells you what's right, or you think halacha tells me that it's binding regardless. 
Um, so if you don't have that experience, then maybe that's not, you're not doing it right. On the other hand, having that experience is not your peak. It's just a test of whether the other experiences, when they agree, are honest. So I wanted to put that out in the first place, and I'm happy to get feedback on that, uh, to think right whether that difference between saying that the aspiration is like the way that Rabbi Akiva perhaps has, right, expresses the aspiration to sacrifice his body. So there's a way of reading, you can re, you can develop a version of Akedah theology in which the aspiration is to sacrifice your soul. And on the other hand, you know, you wanted to say, if you wanted to trivialize it, we could say that maybe what I'm talking about is more like if you if you don't feel any pain, right? No pain, no gain. You're not really exercising. So, right, so if you're not, if there's no resistance to your, uh, right, to your ethical instinct, so then um, you're probably not actually um, engaging it. Okay, so I want to put that on the table first. That's why I'm going back to the Akedah this year and just trying to read the text to see what the best way of reading it on that axis. And I want to talk about a bunch of ways in a bunch of questions you have to ask before you approach the text, knowing the story. Um, so I think that what Professor Kohler points out, I think, which a lot of people have pointed out recently and is really valuable, um, is that when we read the story, we tend to focus, perhaps, that's a moral read. This is a moral claim that we decide whether it's textually true or not. We tend to focus too much on Abraham. Um, and right, the counter critique of that is, right, is we, were, we call it Akedat Yitzchak. And why do we call it, right, and we, we talk about the merit of Akedat Yitzchak, but Yitzchak, is Yitzchak really a character? Or is Yitzchak just an object in the story? So Professor Kohler's critique is that we call it Akedat Yitzchak, but really the, the merit of it in most versions goes to Abraham. And in a sense, when we think that Abraham has merit, then we're often ignoring the impact on Yitzchak. And that's an ethical problem, right? Because how can we give Abraham merit if, um, right, if Yitzchak is, right, if the result of Abraham's merit is that Yitzchak undergoes a massively traumatic experience? Um, other people, right, you know, have pointed out, right, feminist critiques have pointed out that um, we should think about Sarah and, right, and, and have revived the Midrashim in which Satan shows sort of what's happening, in which in which the death of Sarah follows the story because Sarah dies, because Satan tells her about the Akedah, and raise the question about, well, so how is it ethical to focus on what Avraham's experience? Is it right to focus on Avraham's experience? When the, the reality is that Avraham's experience has ramifications on lots of other people, and this is analogous to the, the idea that we should, in reading history, we shouldn't just focus on the great, right, the great, characters of history, we should focus on the ordinary people. So we talk about right, so Abraham is the hero of the Akedah, but that's just because we chose to focus on him, but everyone else, right, the Akedah affects everybody. So that's also an important question that one has to ask about the Akedah is raised. To what extent are we supposed to be... Yes? I Yeah. That is correct, right? So that's that, that's right. All right, the text points. The, the text says it's a test of Abraham, and now the right. So it doesn't seem to be a test of Yitzchak, right? It's a very hard, it's a very hard argument to say that it's a test of Yitzchak. It's certainly not a test of Sarah. The question is whether the test of Abraham is directly just how he responds to God, or whether part of the test is how he reacts to everybody else. That's one way of framing it. The other way of framing it, which which is that. God tests Abraham, that's what he's doing. But then we have to frame it in the same sense as we think about the book of Eov. Right, so the book of Eov is God testing Eov. But God tests Eov because Satan, Kibiachol, seduces God as testing Eov. So at the end of the story of Eov, you're entitled to ask the question, was this a good idea? Right? Was, was it a good idea for God to test um to test Eov, and maybe part of the question of the part of what the Akedah teaches us, and maybe that's the point of the readings in which the Akedah is the tenth test, right? Although there are versions in which the Akedah is the ninth test, and and the death of Sarah is the tenth test, and other versions in which there are other there are other tests. Ten, but if the Akedah is the final test, so maybe one of the messages of the story is that this whole idea of testing turns out not to be a great idea, and that's because it's really hard to engage in a test of one person that doesn't have all the ramifications for lots of um, innocent third parties. So that's a, right. That's a great question. Thank you. And that, that's, that's the way I would, 
and I'll use that as a move to the second question, is when we think about the Akedah, are we only supposed to be thinking about, is Avraham doing the right thing? Or are we also supposed to be thinking about, what does this tell us about the proper relationship between God and human beings both ways? In the same way that, and again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bracket all the theological questions about how you deal with God changing his mind and issues like that. Um, but if you read the narrative of Bracious on a, on a, without, you know, before you figure out how you're going to fit this into Maimonidian theology, it looks like you know, that God reacts differently. For example, after the flood, God says he's not going to do this again. Right? I'm not going to, all right, uh, I'm not going to send any more floods. And that seems to, that seems to be a claim that the world is not going to be, right, that, you know, that the, the punishment for sin is no longer going to be wiping out all of humanity. There are challenges to that. What he says to Moshe Rabbeinu is a challenge to that. Um, there's a Gemara I love quoting, which you know, relates to a, a uh, to an old spiritual. Right, the God God gave Noah the rainbow sign. No more, no more, uh, no more water is the fire next time. Uh, right, which, which is also an explanation of the story of Stone, which is a way right, a way of getting out of the uh, of getting out of the notion that there's an absolute promise. But it seems it's possible to say that the um, that the whole idea of testing um, turns out based on the Akeda, that the idea of testing is not a good idea, and testing doesn't really show up again in the rest of uh, probably. Um, there's one place, right? There's the right? There are a couple of places where God tests the Jewish people by the Mun. There are complaints that the Jewish people are testing God by Nasu Otizeser Pamim. But uh, none of those are um, utterly, uh, none of those are, are framed without ambivalence, and generally they don't work, um, right? Generally they don't work. People, the result of testing doesn't seem to be happy. So we could say that part of what we learn about the Akedah is that God commits not to do it again. And as we look at the, we look at the very end of the story, right? So there's a, there's a verse that we don't usually pay attention to. So maybe we'll start back, we'll start at the back end. Um, so if you look at the, um, hopefully I have the right thing on screen. If you look at the Makara um, that I, um, that I put out, um, right, I'll, I'll share my screen now in case you don't have the thing, right? So at the very end in, um, in Pasuk Ted Zayin, right? There's a, there's a verse that struck me when I was rereading today that I realized I had not, sufficiently appreciated it says right this is after this is after the the um Akeda has already been stopped and avram's already brought the brought the um brought the the isle instead of yitzchak so it says god promises god speaks to avram a second time from heaven he says i took an oath by myself Right? And then it says, right, because because you have done this thing, and you haven't withheld your son, your only one, I will bless you, and I'll multiply your descendants like the like the stars of heaven, like the the sand of the sea, and your 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 descendants will wipe out, will will inherit the gates of their enemies, and all the people of the land will bless through you, because you have spoken. You have you have hearkened to my voice. So the interesting thing is, what? Why does God have to take an oath? And what is it that He's taking an oath about? So one way of reading it is that up until now, in uh, in Abraham's life, everything has been um, everything has been conditional. Everything has been um, everything everything has been a test. Abraham's life is framed by tests, and this is the end of his journey. His journey starts and now he has reached the land that God will show him. And so Binishpati means that God promises him he's not going to test him again. That whole right, that whole part of his life is over. And maybe that's part of that that reading, that that, that whole whole nature of the relationship um, has to change. I'll put in um, tangentially, this is probably something that we'll explore in coming weeks, that um, it's also the case that uh, I think the way Chazal read it, it seems to be largely correct. Yeah, I mean, even as a matter of chat. Simple chat that um, that uh, Yitzchak is not tested. Uh, Yitzchak goes through a life right without tests, and God tells him not to put himself in tests uh, into situations which are uh, which are testing situations. And then Yaakov, there's enormous tension because 
um, because he has two models. He has Avram's test model, Yitzchak's not test model, and he very much wants to live a life like Yitzchak, but God seems to think that his life should be more like Avraham's. So we'll have to revisit the question of whether testing um, is no longer a, a good model we want to go to. I don't know, I could say maybe we want to go to portfolios as opposed to test tunas um, as ways of um, developing Avraham. Okay. That's a uh, long way of introduction. Uh, the questions people have on what I've said so far, one great question already. Okay, I'll go on then. <laughs> and we'll, uh, okay, so what, I, what I've done is I've asterisked the words that seem to me to set up um, chains where you understand the Akita different, you, know, you understand the Akita differently depending on how you interpret that word. You can see that almost every word in the first pasuk is starred, so we may not get past there. But um, let's take a look at it. So the first pasuk begins, Vayhi, okay, so Vayhi is just a transition word. It happened, uh, right? So it means, right, that we're, it seems, right, it seems to mean that we're, that we're in chronological sequence, what happened previously. And then it says, Achar Hadvarima Eila. So Achar Hadvarima Eila, so the word, there's a machloket in, um, among Chazal about whether, um, the, when you have the words Achar and Acharei, are they, um, right, and some, whether it's one or the other, right? But let's let's assume that each of those words, there's a dispute. But whether you put the word achar or achare in to mean immediately after, or whether you put the word in achar in to say not immediately after, something happened in between. And then that's a chronological way of understanding, a temporal way of understanding it. But then I had to ask, so we say, right, so... You can read it this way. You can say that if it means immediately after, so then you have to connect this story to the story that happened immediately. Whereas if you say that it's, um, right, if you say this muflag, if you say that these were, that whichever word you have in front of you, let's say achar here, right, is intended to create a gap, that means to tell you that you should not read the story as if it's happening in, um, in, in logical sequence. Rather, this story goes back to something that happened before. So So the question is, does achar mean uh, does achar mean after the story immediately preceding the akedah, or does it mean after stories after stories that happened a while back, um, or alternatively, does it mean it just happened and it's not immediately connected? Um, so that's the first question. So the thing is, the the immediately preceding story is the story of the brit that uh, Abraham finally makes with uh with the plishtim and um it doesn't seem it's a pretty jarring transition between this peaceful scene when right when the plishtim show up and they make and they make peace um with avram they, and they create a brit and then all of a sudden we go to the akeda the only person who really tried to make that connection i think is rashbam uh, rashbam argues that the brit that avram makes with the plishtim is an expression is taken as an expression of disbelief that he will actually inherit the land and so the Akeda is a punishment. Um, I have to say that I usually use this as my parade example of why I love Rashbam's um, micro readings. You know, I think that he often has these brilliant linguistic readings but I often have deep deep trouble with his macro readings, his understanding of the purpose of the story and the notion that the Akeda is a punishment uh, for something Avram did wrong immediately before uh, has always struck me as um, really, really, really bothers problematic. Really, really problematic. That you, know, however you deal with the ethics of the test, um, they're multiplied a hundredfold if you think that what's happening is a punishment. Uh, and it seems to me to just strip all the all the power and meaning of the story away. Um, if you come to the show regularly over time, you'll hear me say this frequently, that sometimes it feels to me like Rashbam is taking this beautiful three-dimensional story and taking a large mallet and just smashing it until it's flat. Um, right? Stories, the characters are two-dimensional. And I, 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 find that reading, uh, I find that reading unbearable. But um, but it is justified textually, right? It's hard to thump. There isn't really an alternative. If you think Achar means immediately after, what happened previously? Um, so it has to mention it, even if you, right, even if, to my mind, that might be the best proof that the char doesn't mean immediately after. If that would force you, if saying that the char meant immediately after would force me into that reading, I would run in the opposite direction and say the char means uh, something else entirely. Okay, then we have Advarima Eilech. So 
When I hear the word hadvarim, so there's always a temptation to make it mean words as opposed to events. Um, and, and, that, and that enables you to hypothesize all sorts of conversations, conversations between Yitzchak and Yishmael about who, right, which of them was more willing to sacrifice himself for God uh, right, because Yishmael was circumcised later. And so Yitzchak needs to prove that he is more capable of sacrificing himself. Um, right, that, you, know, you, can, you can come up with whatever characters you have that are previously in the story. Um, right, or you can have characters who aren't even previously in the story. You can have the, the, the dialogue take place in Shemayim and have the angels have the same kind of conversation with God that they had, that Satan had with, with God about Eov and say that something about those provoked the story. Um, if you're just reading the narrative, so it's very, um, you know, unless you, unless you start with the premise that the narrative is not supposed to be intelligible without external material. So, um, it's very hard to say means after conversations that are never recorded anywhere in the text. So failing that, you can say means after events that happened previously, but not immediately previously. And if you're looking at events that happened previously, but not immediately previously, so then there are uh, at least two stories that make um, very rapid sense, uh, right, very easy sense to think that they're the, the kind of story which leads into the Akedah. One of them is um, sending away Yishmael, which now I think uh, following Rav um, Amital, I think, was the first to say it. I heard it from Rav Gilad. Um, there are others now where people talk about Akedah Yishmael. Um, that Avraham has to send another son away. And then prior to that, and then after that, you have the story of um, the story, the story of right, the story of stone. Um, and you have in each of those elements you have Avraham um, arguing against right. God wants him to do something, and Avraham doesn't want to do it. And then eventually, God Avraham gives in. He sends Ishmael away. Uh, or if you want to go back previously, he sent right, he lets Sarah send Agar away. Um, he tries to prevent the destruction of stone, but fails. Um, even though that means that. Uh, so far as he knows, that means that Lot, uh, right, that Lot dies in destruction because we have no evidence in the text itself. Uh, right, one of the one of the ways in which a midrash can completely alter the meaning of the story is that when Avram goes to the Akedah, we, saw, we, we see he takes Shnei Aravito. So the question is, who are the Shnei Narim? So they can be they can be anonymous characters, but um, following the general midrashic principle that anonymous characters are actually should be identified with name characters elsewhere in the text. So one of the readings of them is that the Shnei Narav are um, Yishmael and Lot, in which case Avram does know that Yishmael and Lot survived. And if Avram does know that Yishmael and Lot survived, so then that makes you wonder whether Avram knows that, Yish, that, Yish, that Yitzchak is going to survive this also. And that changes, that, that makes you read the story one way. On the other hand, if you read this as just Shnei Narim, then the simple meaning of the text seems to be that Avram does not know that Yishmael and Lot survived. And then his reaction to the commandment to Yitzchak is going to be very different. So we have to um, we have to play that out as well. Okay, so Achar had bring la'ela. You have to decide whether Achar means close by or further back. Um, if it means close by, so we talked about the one possibility, which I don't like. If it means further back, we gave it several possibilities. And then within those possibilities, we then have to ask the next question. Assuming that the, this Akedah, this story, Akedah story happens Achar Rima'ela means it happens after the stories of Yishmael and Lot, or, right, or, or Yishmael and Sidom, whichever way you want to read that. They happen after stories in which Avram sends a son away, and in which Avram argues with God and right, either concedes or loses. So then the question is, is this Akedah simply the intensification of what he's supposed to learn from those stories, which are that sometimes you have to send your, sometimes you have to sacrifice your children for God, and when you argue with God, you're wrong, or is it the right, or is it a corrective for those stories? And that will get us back to really whether the the the, the fundamental interpretational question of the story, which is whether, which we as we raised at the very beginning, which is whether when the the angel stops Abraham because the akedah is has already happened and so it doesn't matter anymore, or the angel stops Abraham because the whole point of the story is that the angel stops Abraham. And the moment that matters in the story is Avraham stopping. Okay, 
So yeah, Charzim Eile, Ve'elokim Nisat Abraham. So Ve'elokim is an issue that um, right, you know, um, right, that there's always an issue about what it means when you have um, right, when you when you have uh, names of God in uh, in the story. Right, you know that the first story of Bereshit uh, always uses Elokim. The second story in Bereshit always uses Hashem Elokim, and then thereafter through Bereshit, sometimes it says Hashem and sometimes it says Elokim. Uh, the Chazal use um, Elohim to mean both the God of nature and the God of justice, the God of rules, right? Nature and justice match together because the rules in Yudke Vavke to mean the personal God and the God of mercy because, right, because that's the God who is not, um, not bound by, not, not dealing with abstractions, but dealing with, um, dealing with particulars. So in this story, it's Elohim, Elohim, Elohim until, uh, when you get to, uh, Aleph, it's the right? That the the angel that calls out to the angel that calls out to Abraham to stop the Akeda is a malach of Yudke Vavke, not a malach of Elokim. So that's right. One of the best um, examples of, for demonstrating that Elokim means din, Elokim means justice, and Yudke Vavke means rachamim, means mercy. But we have to right. So you have to figure out what does it mean to say that Elokim tested Abraham as opposed to saying Yudke Vavke. Um, and it's like one way of reading the story is that the purpose of the story is that, Av- that Avram is the epitome of Chesed, but he, but Chesed is being tested by Din, and in the end, the movement of the story is that God moves that God moves into Avraham's realm of Chesed, or which I think is roughly parallel to Rachamim, not quite the same as opposed to Avraham moving into the uh, moving from Chesed to Din, or you can come with a more complex. Uh, framing of that. Okay, so we have Nisa. So the word Nisa uh, has a fundamental ambiguity. Uh, right, so what its etymology is. You can say that Nisa, which is what we've assumed all along, is that God tested Abraham. And then you get into the debate about what the purpose of a test is. Um, and this is a you know, debate that you can find out. You can see in um, in educational uh, in educational theory as well, uh, you can say the purpose of a test is so that the teacher will know whether what the stu- right, how good the student is. You can say if the purpose of a test is so the student will know how good the student is, and you can say the purpose of a test is because the experience of the test is itself part of the student's education. Right. So Elokim Nisad Abraham, we have the same options. Elokim, right? God tested Abraham because God wanted to know something about Abraham. God tested Avram because Avram needed to know something about himself. And God tested Avram because there was something in Avram that existed in potentia but needed to be brought out into the actual. Right? That's Ramban's uh, statement, right? That a test, the purpose of a test is always to bring the um, right to bring the right to bring the potential out into the actual. The other meaning of Nisa is that it means to run somebody up a right, run somebody up a flagpole, right? To exalt them or to use them as a banner. Um, it says Rashi says that when you go into a store, a merchant uh, beyond a barrel uh, to a cooper's shop, right? So the cooper bangs on, or coopers are wood barrels, right? Thing, right? So you go to a potter's shop, right? And you have they have, and they have pots for sale. So they're going to show you this is really good, right? They just want to show you it's it, that it's really stable. So which pot are they going to bang on to show you it's stable? The good pot, because that's how they advertise their wares properly, right? If you um, if, right, if they have a uh, if they have a weak pot that's badly put together and they bang on it, it's going to break, and that would be bad public relations. So they only bang on the strong pots. So Rashi says that's right. God is trying to show the uh, to show off his wares. He wants everyone else to understand something uh, uh, about his work, and so he picks Avram because Avram is the pot that it's a good idea to bang on. Um, so that's a really interesting notion that the purpose of the Akeda is to demonstrate something to other people. And this is an idea that's picked up uh, and relates to um, to some of the challenges that Professor Kohler and others put out, which um, if you, we have a whole bunch of stories in which people sacrifice their children. Uh, I forget I forget the book that put this together first, but um, Agamemnon right, in the Iliad is sacrifices Iphigenia so that the uh, right, so that the the fleet will get uh, will get to Troy, and Meshamelach uh, Moab in Tanakh sacrifices his son, um, and you have this whole religion called Moloch. So, the question is, um, if you 
put Avraham in his Bronze Age context, whatever it is, um, would it have been seen as, would he have instinctively seen it as a religiously unacceptable idea that God is commanding, um, that God is commanding child sacrifice? Uh, so Rav Cook, for example, says that the purpose of the Akedah is to demonstrate to the rest of the world that an invisible, intangible God can command the same kind of loyalty that a physical idol can. He might have thought that that you know that um, that uh, Judaism was too intellectual, too cold, um, and everyone would say, "Ha, that's not really religion." You don't really care about your God as much as you do. You're just right. You're just intellectual posers. So Avram has to do this to show no, we can reach the same the same heights of um, the same heights as um, as you can. And other readings like that. Uh, of course, the counter reading is to claim that the right, that the purpose of the story is for Avram to understand that this is not what God wants. Right? That maybe Avram doesn't realize it can't be what God wants at the beginning, because all the other gods do. And this is the way which Avram learns, no, this God is really, really, uh, this God is really, really different. Um, and then uh, Professor Levinson um, right, points out, I think, and Professor Kohler picks up on this, that um, there are survivals of child, right, there are things analogous to child sacrifice in our religion, like, you know, Pidina Ben, in some way. So maybe, right, there's some, right, maybe there's some uh, atavistic survival of the idea, and then we have to figure out why that would be. Is it because the idea really has value, uh, or is it because we can never get out of the idea in our the idea in our heads that it does have value, and therefore right we need some way to to um, to express it anyway, even though it's not anything that God would really want. Okay, so Elokim Nisa. So we have one other word in this pasuk we need to really explore, which is Et. Um, so the word Et is usually a direct object marker, uh, right? So Elokim Nisa to Abraham it means that God. That God, God, uh, subject tested Abraham, uh, Abraham uh, object, um, but there are right, Nisa um, can also be right. It's a, it's a complicated word, right? Can, it, so it can be the active. Um, I'm terrible at the end. Peel, right? Or it can be the right, or it can be the nifal, right? It can mean that God was tested, and et can be a direct object marker, but it can also mean with. Uh, so there's a reading that I um, I find very attractive, which is uh, my 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 midrashic textual imposition of Elie Wiesel's reading, uh, which I say I love to tell a story. But right? that I, when I first taught Wiesel's Wiesel's reading, uh, I gave it a um, I described it as cosmic chicken. I'll explain what that means in a moment. And uh, Amram Trapper was a professor, I think, at Ben Gurion now, uh, used to come back to Herbert Hill and just. At Parsha Bayera, just so he could get up and say, "This is not a game of chicken. It's not a game of chicken." Uh, so probably many of you have seen um, Rebel Without a Cause, right? Rebel Without a Cause opens this famous scene where you play chicken, where um, two, right, two um, un, unhappy youngsters drive, right, drive cars towards a cliff, and whoever gets out first loses. Right? You, win, you, win, you win if you get out last. Um, so Eli Wiesel has a vision, right, where Belkinisat uh, Abraham means that God is tested together with Abraham. They're testing each other, and God is saying to Abraham, uh, right, you know, I really, really want you, I really, really want you to do this because I really want you to show me that you really care more about your relationship with me than your relationship with any with any other being. And Abraham says to God, If you really, really tell me to do this, I will. And then that's going to be on your right. Then we know, but then that's going to be on on your whatever on you forever that you're going to that you told me to do this. And so there's a game, right? Seeing who's going to blink first. Because if Avram blinks early, so then he doesn't really have faith in God. And if God blinks too late, then Avram loses loses his faith in God, loses his faith in God because God can really tell him to do something like this. And so right, there's that. The the question is right, who can right. Who's going to blink first, right? Is Avram going to refuse first, or is God going to tell him not to first? Um, okay, right. So that's a lekim nisad to Abraham. The God was said together with Abraham. Are there questions about that? I'm not sure that's a question. Like that, not just like you want Abraham to actually argue with God. It seems kind of going along with it is sort of his argument, but but you don't have that argument in the story. So that yeah, I don't. That's a challenge. 
No, Rizal doesn't think that Avram arguing. Right? He thinks that uh, you know this doesn't have to be a dialogue. Right? Avram, you know, is that Avram and God each know. Yes. In his head. He doesn't say it to God, right? But he knows why God wants this, right? God wants this because God wants to show that God wants God wants Avram to show that he really trusts him. And whatever God says he'll do. Avram knows that. And that is really what God wants. But God also doesn't want Avram. Right? This is not the version which Avram is supposed to argue. Right? This is the version which Avram is not supposed to argue. But, you know, but, it, but it's not, you know, Avram's waiting for God to say no. Um, but he has to, right? But if he, if he breaks off without waiting for God to say no, then he doesn't really, right? Then he doesn't really trust God at all and the relationship's broken. But he has to wonder, you know, at the end of the day, will God really want him to do this? Because it's the only way he can prove it. If God tells him to stop, then God can never know that that, that Avram will do anything. So I don't think this has to be, I think Wiesel's argument is that this is all understood. You know, it, you know they've, they've been together a long time. They had lots of conversations. They know exactly what's going on. And then the interesting, but the interesting question is, what, what really matters more? Does it matter more that Avraham believed that God will never tell him to do something unethical? Or does it matter more that God believes that Avraham will do whatever he tells him? And in the end of this reading, it matters more that Avraham believes that God will never tell him to do anything unethical. The, 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 the power of, of Wiesel's reading is that God blinks before Avraham does. Um, does that make sense? Okay, right, so I'm not, this is not the, there, there is a version in which Avram is supposed to argue, uh, right, which is the version that this comes immediately after Stom, and the, and the moral of the story is that Avram loses his confidence that he can hold God to a standard because of Stom, and so God, the, the purpose of this story is to say, you didn't argue this time, but this time you would have been right, and what would have happened if I hadn't stopped you? You can't always count on there being an angel to stop you. Uh, right, that's, right, that is the, uh, Yes? Yeah, that's a big problem. Right? I think you know, for those for, for those of us living in a world, right, the challenge, right, in a world without the um, without divine revelation. So the problem we have is that we do have God telling us to do things, and we're not always going to feel that what God is telling us is right. But since we don't have any way of knowing, right, but how do we know that there's going to be an angel? Uh, right, so you can say, you know, there's like the uh, right the old uh, joke, which I've or story, which I, I've heard both in NCSY context and in many in many uh, non-Jewish contexts, you know, that uh, somebody standing on right on a roof during a flood and saying, you know, God, please help me, and God sends the the boat, and he says, no, no, I'm waiting for God, right? He says the helicopter, I'm waiting for God, right? Then he turns to God and says, so it could be that we're supposed to believe that what happens is when when it seems like Torah is telling you to do something that's wrong. So there, yeah, maybe there are all these books on your on your shelf that will fall off your shelf, and open them, and you'll find the text that tells you not to do that. You know, but that too often we, right, too often, not everybody is listening, right? That could, but I, I think you can't count on angels. You can't count on angels, and that's really the scary part of this story. Um, okay, so so he starts off by addressing him by names. That in itself is a really interesting thing is that right, that's not so often that you find God introducing uh, right God starting by calling someone by name and that presumably is an expression of, uh, of right of intimacy right when God's when God calls you by name Avram responds right I'm here whatever that means right Avram keeps Avram says in any all the way right all the way through the story right um, in any veni right when uh, right later later with Yitzchak in uh, in Pasuk Zion, right, of the, the light motifs of the Red Hineni again in Pasuk Yud Aleph. Uh, but if you like the, the light motif approach, right, you look for words that run through the story and are markers of meaning. So the three times that Avram says Hineni are, um, right, are powerful. Right, you have this Hineni to God, you have in Pasuk Zion, you have Hineni Vini to, um, to Yitzchak, and then in Yud Aleph, you have Hineni to the, um, to the Malach Hashem. Um, and each time he's responding to somebody addressing him, right? The first time he responds to God addressing him as Abraham. The second time 
he responds to um, Yitzchak addressing him as um, as a V, all right, um, and that um, I would say that um, probably my uh, my dear friend Rabbi Nachman Levine would. Uh, I, I have to ch- I have to channel him to think this way, but once I do it, I think it makes sense. So what does Abraham mean? Abraham means Avhamon Goyim, right? Avraham is the universal father. And Yitzchak, instead of calling Avraham the universal father, Yitzchak calls him Avi, my father, right? And so part of the whole tension in the story is the right is the question about whether Avraham is acting on this giant scale or right or whether Avraham is acting on the scale of the personal relationship. And the third time, Pasikudalaf, right, the Malach Hashem refers to him and calls him twice Avraham Abraham. So what's the difference between saying right, Abraham once and saying Abraham twice? Um, and how does that relate to the shift in the middle where he, he responds at, he, he responds as Avi? Um, and so that's one, so one, one, one uh, I get light motif is the word we use, Milam Ancha, that runs through the story to any, and the other one um, is Vayilchush Nehem Yachtav, which also shows up, uh, or Vayilchush Yachtav, which shows up three times in the story. Um, right at the end of Pasuk Vav, when they're first on their way, so it's Vayilchush Nehem Yachtav, and that, that's Avraham and Yitzchak, and then in Pasuk, uh, Pasuk Chet, after Yitzchak asks the question, what are we doing here, right? Where's the Seli Allah? And Avram says, Elohim, you're Eloha Seli Allah, God will show the se. So it says, uh, right, so there he says, it says, Ve'elchush Nehem Yachdav again. And then the uh, the really big one, you know, the one that that in modern readings has enormous power is in Pasuk Yitet. So after this whole story, right, Ve'yashav Avram el Ne'arav, Avram goes back to his Ne'arim, and they get up, now Avram goes with his Ne'arim together to Beersheba, and Yitzchak and Avram do not appear together again in Avram's lifetime. And um, right, it sounds like um, it sounds like Yitzchak from the beginning of Chayesar. It sounds like Yitzchak and Avram are living in different places thereon. So something happens to break the Achdav of um, of Avram and Yitzchak. And if you want to be really, really make the really strong thing, right? So you'll point out that at the very beginning. It's not just that Avram is Yachtav um, with Yitzchak, it's Avram is Yachtav with Yitzchak as opposed to the Ne'arim. Because when they're leaving, right, when they're leaving on the final stage of the Akedah, right, so you have the famous line, Shvulachem Poim Achamor, right? Avram says to Ne'arim, you guys stay here with the donkey, right? Vani Vehanar, Ne'elcho Adko. I and the Na'ar will go on, right? So Yitzchak is the Na'ar as opposed to the Ne'arim. At the end of the story, Avram is no longer Yachtav with Yitzchak, he's Yachtav with the Ne'arim. So that might write that uh, that um, justifies certain kinds of readings of the um, of the Akeda. Okay. So Vayachar Rimeilav Elokim Nisarat Abraham Emre Elav Abraham Vayomer Hineni Vayomer. So then God says to him, Kachna Et Bincha Etichidcha Shirahavta Yitzchak. So the next big thing I'm asked to ask is, how seriously do we take the Na? Um, so there are. Uh, Midrashim, I think, if I recall correctly, Rashi quotes it that um, take the na very seriously as saying that this is a request and not a not a command. Um, and if you really treat it as a request and not a command, so then that opens up certain kinds of avenues of, um, about the reading and closes off other ways of reading that kid. So, for example, the reading. Um, that uh, the briskers like to take, the one that to some extent Professor Kohler is criticizing, is right, says that what's right, asks the question, what's the difference between why does Avram argue at Sodom? He doesn't argue here. So the answer is that here Avram is commanded. And that also ties into the reading, right, where Midrashim say that after the Malach speaks to Avram, then Avram says, hang on a sec, but, you know, what was going on here all along? You promised me that Yitzchak would live, and you promised me, and Yitzchak would be able to send it, now you're telling me to kill him, right? You're contradicting yourself. But he wouldn't ask that question, right? This is the, the word that Rav quotes from, from his grandfather, that Avram wouldn't ask the question while he was commanded, because when you're commanded, that shuts off all questions. Your obligation is just to, right, not to make reply, not the reason why, uh, just to do it, then whoever dies, dies. But um, if you say it's kachna, and kachna really means please, and not um, and not you must, so then that whole reading disappears uh, because there is no command. And then you have to figure out. Right, you know, and then 
right? So the right, so the way Rashi I think says it is that God says to Avram, I really need you to stand up to this test because otherwise all the other ones will be pointless. They were all designed to build up to this. If you don't pass this, then everyone will say, oh, no, the other, no, the other Nisiyonah really meant anything. That's an interesting reading why that should be. Um, but what it means is that, which is also a powerful and scary reading, that it's very explicit that the issue isn't command versus independent thought, right? the way the briskers read it. The issue is which relationship matters more to you. I really need you to do this. It's true that doing this will have that right will have that implication for someone else, but I really need you to do this. Um, right, so that right, so how seriously we take the nah matters a great deal, and part of that is going to be right to, to what extent right, we pointed out that there's no right that in um, in pasuk right, in pasukhet Avram says and then in um, and then right, the um, sorry, I read it wrong. Pasuk Dalid, right? Pasuk Dalid, Avram says, "Vayarat hamakomber meirachuk," and then Avram says to Yitzchak, "Elakim yirelo haset leolah bini." So you have these visual things, which we point out is probably the fulfillment of Ella Arz Asher Eka um, in the original command of Lechlecha, and that right, so part of the whole tension in the Abraham story is. Why is it so necessary for Avraham to break his relationship with family? And you have two ways of reading that. One way of reading it is that Avraham has, a, has, has an obligation to break his relationship with his past family so that his only relationship is with his present family. And the other way of reading it is that Avraham needs to break his relationship with all other human beings in order to build a relationship, a family that is founded on relationship to God. So that's also a deep challenge in um, in the, the, the way of the way of reading um of reading Kach, of reading Kachna. Um, okay, so um, beyond expectations, we've actually gotten all the way to Pasuk Bet. I've connected right at some point, I write Lech Lechalar to Maria, and it's nine o'clock. Um, so I think that's where I will end stop talking. Um, if anyone has um, questions about anything I have said in the Shir, uh, which obviously is Kitipam and Hayam, right, because we're only on Pasuk Bet. <laughs> Um, and, they're, they're, you know, and I didn't try at all to bring in any anyone else's readings of the Akeda except, I guess, for Wiesel. Um But if anyone has questions about anything I said tonight, this would be a great time to ask them. Something I find sort of a broader question mm-hmm. about Roman Harper is, do you think that the text, the things we look at is that the text is not to the two squares towards the right in terms of So that's a that's a great question, not just about the Akeda, right? That's a question about almost every text. Um, right? Do you get? Uh... <laughs> you want to ask something about the Akeda, right? No, that's a fair. Yeah. So it's tempting, or anything. If I were in a clever mood, I would say, you know, the, that it's a self-referential text because the way to, the proper way to read the Akeda is the first time. You know, you're supposed to read it, you know, the first time you're supposed to read it in which you just hear the, the, the first angel, but eventually you're supposed to get to the point where you hear the second angel. Um, right, so you read, right, so you read, the, you read the Akeda. Uh, you're supposed to understand why it is that Avraham would do it, but right, and, it's, right, and, and have the Havamina that you're supposed to read it, you know, that it's really just an accident that Yitzchak survives, right, and then... The mature reading you're supposed to reach at the end is that no, he's not supposed to. That that would be or being clever. That would be, right? That would be. Yeah. So when I taught, yeah. Uh, Rav Hutner, I taught this at, at Shashkama last year. Rav Hutner has this wild reading 
for this while analogy. Um, so if you come back next year, I'll probably teach you that. Teach that, uh, which Rafutner says that it's analogous to a, it's analogous to a Gemara sugya, that in order to in order to get to the conclusion of the Gemara, you have to really take the stages on the way. You have to take the Havamina, the Havamina seriously in a Gemara, or you can't understand what the Maskana is. And Rav Sarahudner says that's exactly what, the, that's how you're supposed to read the Akedah. You have to, you have to really believe the Havamina. Uh, and then you have to get, I, I think, but, right. Yeah, that's, I, I do think. I do think that the, um, I think it's very hard to read the story that as saying that Avram was not supposed to argue about the stone. And I think it's, and I don't find it compelling at all that the fact that he was commanded would change it. And therefore, uh, I've always been very attracted to the idea that the purpose of the Akeda is to restore Avram's confidence after he loses the argument about stone. And the teacher that he is in fact supposed to challenge God when he thinks God is wrong, and then God will either agree with him or not. But his job is to his job is to challenge. I think that is the. Um... Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.